Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Lorelai Weissel. I'm Brian Dawes. And I'm Chris Delano. And we are here for week two of the Return of Magic Story to the Mothership. Uh, if you listened last week, we covered the first main story and the first side story that came out on Friday and dealt with Akiri and Zareth and their little side adventure kind of parallel to the things that are going on in the main story. And we're picking up with the sequels to both of them, the episodes twos. Uh, although uh, I think what we're going to do is do the side story first because it's a better lead in to the second main story. So usually we talk main story first, then side story, but we're going to swap it up because it makes more sense. Um, but before we head into that, just a slight disclaimer. There is hammering happening in my vicinity for a thing that has to happen right now. So there might be some hammering in this episode. And if there is, I'm very sorry. Chris, how is your how how is your howling? Uh, there's a little bit of howling. I don't think it'll be a problem. Uh, if you can hear the howling on my microphone, it's probably too late for me anyways. <laughs> we don't we don't go to Innistrad again until late next year. We gotta hold off on the werewolf attacks. See, I'm just getting in the, the spirit of Halloween already. It's only like a month away. So you're going to go from the Toothlich to the werewolf? I don't think this is fair. I'm going to be a, a, a were-tooth. Oh, God. I turn into a tooth <laughs> under the, the light of a full moon. On Innistrad, I have a little silver filling because it's a silver moon. I don't, I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, do I turn into like a giant tooth or do I turn into like a normal sized human tooth? Well, I mean, a werewolf turns into a werewolf gets even bigger than a human. And that's humans are already way bigger than wolves. So I would assume you become like a big monstrous tooth. My next question then is what happens if a giant was to put me in my were tooth form into its mouth? I uh, would eat you. I would assume. Instead of thinking about that, though, we should talk about some stories. Yeah? I I agree. <laughs> Fine, I guess. We we definitely should start with the, the Magosi steps, though, because it's kind of like a prequel to Race to the Marasa Skyclave, which is really cool. The first two side stories are a part one and a part two, both by Miguel Lopez. Um, and so if you listen last week, we're just kind of picking up where that episode left off uh, with uh, Akiri and Zareth San on a side mission. They are at the Magosi waterfall and they are going to guide a merfolk caravan to Coralhelm. They have a whole bunch of oxen. It is now the morning that they are to depart. And we get some, like, good little character-building slice of life moments where Zareth is like, Hey, Kiri, do you know what they're hauling here? And Akira's like, I don't know, but I bet you're about to tell me. And Zareth <laughs> takes out, like, a handful of fruit and is like, Yep, it's fruit from the inland, because he stole some. And Akira's like, Dude, you can't steal this stuff. And so, like, Z Zareth is really easygoing, and, and, you know, when your epithet is the trickster, you just kind of do a little bit of crime here and there, a little a little thievery. Uh, and Akiri, Akiri is real about duty and doing the job and just just protect, making sure that the people are actually protected. In this story, she reminds me of Money Penny off of James Bond, and she's 
like looking at uh, their and like incorrigible. <laughs> I uh, I really love Zareth. Zareth is very cute and fun, and I hope nothing bad happens to him. <laughs> That's, yeah, that'll be fine. You know, like there there's a little roiling of uh, of the land here, and they're like, ah, don't worry about it. Um, the uh, Umara steps are like one of the few secure spots on Tazim. You know, we'll be fine. <laughs> uh, and then they walk away and immediately are like, we're not fine. This is bad. This is very bad. There's a series of switchbacks on the side of the Magosi waterfall. It's the, uh, the biggest waterfall on Zemago. It's over 300 feet tall. And so they have to go like single file down. The progress is very slow. And then it jams to a halt because an ox breaks an ankle. Oh no. Uh, to clarify, the oh no is in our notes. I wonder... <laughs> Like, who crossed over that ox? Like, was it, like... No, it's. I think it was one of their ox. It was part of their caravan. Yeah. Because the next thing they do is they take all of the, the caravan items off the ox, and they spread them out among the other ones, uh, and then they kill it. The, the merfolk are just like, whack. You're done. Goodbye, ox. Put it out of its misery. Send it to the glue factory. I don't think they have glue on Zemeko. We don't like you. Like they have a bunch of books. Yeah. Like they have a bunch of books at Seagate. I'm sure they have some kind of glue. That's true. You have to have glue to make books. You do not. Okay, that's true. You can actually make books without glue, but it's very helpful. Yeah, it's very simple. Regardless, they're like, okay, we dealt with the socks. Everything will be fine, right? Because you know everything will be fine. That's what everyone thought. Certainly not a bad omen at all. And then uh, it, it turns out that in a cave behind the waterfall at the base of, uh, of the Cascade lives a serpent named Berazal, who is worshipped as a god, a mighty, ravenous creature, very tough, very big, can just freely swim up and down the waterfall at will. And it turns out that Berazal is awake and hungry and starts attacking the caravan wait a minute what the godzilla set was last set what the heck's going on <laughs> hey zendikar's still filled with monsters this is still the set with like lorthos and tarex and Arexial and uh Fine. All, those, all those fun pals i i do want to say um it's very cool in the story that we get this legendary creature card in the story because like you know Throwing in the legends is really cool. But the thing I really appreciated was the way that uh, Miguel Lopez writes the introduction of this character, this monster. And you actually can read it and be like, this is a legend. This is what it means to be a legendary creature. Uh, the way that it's being described by, actually by uh, Akiri before Zareth Sand sees it and knows what it is. She like refers to it in such a way that very clearly makes it a legendary creature. Yeah, and, like, Akiri is describing it in a lot of the same way that she thinks about the Eldrazi, and she kind of goes back into the fight the Eldrazi mode, because she is once again one tiny core against a gigantic, horrifying monster. And she gets on her lines and swings around and does all that stuff, and is doing okay. Hey, oh no, Varazal has a second mouth and an Oxara, of course, and she kind of careens down and is barely holding onto a cliff and 
it's a panic mode for her. There's a lot of teeth. So many teeth. She's like, I'm in danger. Uh, so she uh, she falls, and it's this really... Um, well, the first thing she does, which is very important, is she does end up getting a stab on Verizal before she falls. Uh, she falls, and it's the fourth time she has ever fallen in her experience as a line slinger, which was just, I thought, a really cool part of the story again, where it sort of went through her first fall onto a small mattress, her second fall into a uh, safe area but she still saved herself her third fall was uh i forget what her third fall was unimportant because her fourth one is this one she's about to die yep but she's a bad nope she's a she's a baller i guess (laughs) yeah let's go with that and uh she saves herself and um manages to land on a small outcropping but uh, Verzal's head is coming down for her when Zerathan is uh, up with the caravan, just like, well, this is bad. This is so, so bad. And uh, he kind of tricks some of the other merfolk into turning the attention from Zerazal's second head away from Akiri back to himself and the, uh, the caravan and jumps off the cliff after leaving them to their doom. Yeah, they yeet an ox onto Verizal's head. Uh, like, Zareth is like, oh, well, there's nowhere we can really go because Verizal's just gonna eat us all. And I can't save the merfolk and I can't save the caravan. And they're all good as dead. But I have this gambit that I can maybe save me and Akiri. It really is this sort of beautiful moment, though, where uh, you don't kind of recognize it happening in real time as you're reading the story because you're sort of convinced like okay so Zareth has this plan to distract the monster with the oxen so they can all get away and then you realize no the plan was to kill all of them so that Zareth could get away and you're like oh yes this is a blue black character he's a rogue I totally had to reread that several times to really understand the depth of his betrayal like my my favorite thing about the moment, though, is the fact that Zareth jumps off the side and sort of just flies down towards this, you know, the bottom of Magosi, uh, and he knows full well that he does not have climbing gear, he does not have a harness, he has no hook and line, uh, and he knows he's doing it just because Akiri will save him. That's his whole reason for doing this kind of ridiculous movement to get both him and Akiri to be safe. Yes, they drop off into the mists and uh, narrowly escape, and uh, they return to Seagate, uh, deliberately avoiding Korohom. And uh, in our in our notes, who added the hashtag guilt AF? Me. <laughs> <laughs> Brian's the one who hashtags everything. <laughs> Akiri has a hard time with this because she knows Zareth like didn't have a choice. She knows that they all would have died. If Zareth hadn't sacrificed part of the caravan to save the two of them, that they're only the only there was no fighting Varazal. The only way that they would survive is running, and that meant leaving the caravan behind. The way it sounded is like I don't think any of the caravan would have survived. Like the way, yeah. it, it, so it, it was just like, well, we let's, let's bet, some is better than none, right? So. Essentially, that's the call Zareth made, uh, and and the story ends like 
with this really bittersweet moment where it's like, nobody feels good about this situation. There's no heroes here. There's no there's no relief of having survived. It's very, like, dark and rawly pragmatic, which I think, outside of the story itself, I think it it's an interesting story to put on Zendikar as kind of uh, not just adventure world, but, like, really a wilderness survival world. Sometimes you have to make awful choices just to survive, and that's what this story is about. These last few paragraphs of the story, like the last uh, delineated section here, is just really beautiful writing. Um, the The actual descriptions, the the line just, uh, there was no possible right thing for him to do, no space for anything more than brutal calculus. That's just, oof. it it hurts when you read it. Like you're, you feel terrible. Yeah, and it gives, I think, like, these two side stories with Kiri and Sarah are really good character building stories for them. Uh, Kiri talks a lot about her dedication to uh, want to protect people, want to make people better, want to make Zendikar better. Um, and you you get the sense that yeah, like Zareth isn't trustworthy and he's not loyal, but at least to Akiri, he's a good friend. And there are ways in which he is duplicitous, but there are a lot of ways where he's just very honest. Um, you know, I, I said pragmatic before, and, and that's that's just kind of who he is. Um, there is a groundedness to him. He's not an idealist, and I think Akiri is. But I also don't think Akiri's idealism is foolish. I think it's very much grounded in um, some of her own real experiences. Yeah, it's a wonderful character piece, and I'm excited to revisit these characters when we go back to Zendikar again. Well, like next week? Yeah, sure. We'll get to see them next week, probably. I mean, like, I imagine they'll be in the main story. Yeah. I could do you one better. We can continue talking about them in Race to the Marasa Skyclave, the main set story that uh, picks up kind of where the Magosi Steps leaves off, although shifts a lot of the attention back over to Nahiri, because... The main set story is focusing on the planeswalkers. Before we do that, I, I do just want to say an overall feeling of these this two-part story by Miguel Lopez. Uh, very good and totally something you can read on its own without having to read the rest of the surrounding story to really get it. Um, I do want to go ahead and like, we, we do a lot of story summary and we don't do a lot of like criticism on here. And I just do want to say, like, the only thing that I didn't really feel from the story was the description of the fight in the second story is really good, and it's just really long. And that was probably, like, the only thing I have to say about this story. It is kind of hard to get through that fight. I enjoy combat scenes, and I thought this one, like, there was there was a lot of complexity in the fight because of the, the multi, the two heads and whatnot, but I really enjoyed the the this the entire scene um that's just me because i like reading how combat unfolds because i like imagining that kind of stuff um so i i did enjoy it but i i really enjoyed the depth um that it gave these two characters and it makes me kind of sad how uh nothing bad happens to him it's okay yeah sure let's go with that we haven't talked about that yet so it hasn't happened sure 
Anyway, <laughs> race to the Marasa Skyclave, unless Chris has another thing he wants to go over. I just want to think a little bit on um, what would happen if we got one of the Toothlitch's teeth into... No, Fairly. okay. <laughs> so Nahiri is at the Seagate Expeditionary House. Uh, this is the... She she is the benefactor of this entire exploration thing. I guess when you're a Lithomancer and you can probably just like turn granite into gold, you can probably get rich very quickly. It's my assumption. That's not like canon. But anyway, uh, so she goes uh, to the Expeditionary House to meet up with Ksenia, who is the person who brought Black, brought back the Dragon's Frill, that first artifact from the Skyclaves. Uh, she is kind of the leader in in the Expeditionary House uh, and is the person who set it up with Nahiri. And Nahiri is here because she needs a team to help her get into the Marasa Skyclave and find whatever it is that she is looking for. Remember, uh, last week she found this key that helps her unlock the location of whatever power it is she is seeking in the Skyclaves to help quell the royal. She needs some pros. And, uh, hey, what a coincidence. Akiri and Zareth just got back here. And they have reunited with the rest of their crew, their kind of little found family, which is uh, Kaza, the royal mage, and Aura, Skyclave Hierophant. Because uh, she's a wizard who's... Uh, Likes blowing things up. God, she loves blowing things up. Uh, and she's a bit of a tinkerer and can, like, surf on her wizard staff, which I think is awesome. Uh, and then Aura has a deep love for the history of the core, especially the ancient Makindi Empire. So, like, he, he meets uh, Nahiri and... Um, you know, is very excited to find out that she's potentially old enough to have actually lived in the McKinney Empire and that they're going to explore a skyclave. And he's, he's just, like, excited to be there. He has a very tragic backstory, which I, I thought was fun to include. Well, not fun, but... Hey, guess what? They they all have tragic backstories. Well, yeah, but he's got, like, a particularly somber-sounding one. Yeah, what is it? His whole family died. To the uh, his whole family died. To the Eldrazi, just like Akiri's all all her friends and folks died, and and Zareth's folks all died. And, uh, that's that's what happens when you are the one who survives the apocalypse. Is you you are left in the wake of all that was taken from you. Yeah, but this is like an Ocean's Eleven story, not like a apocalypse story. So like, let's get back to planning the heist. Yeah, well. So, Zareth decides that he doesn't trust Nahiri, because he's not a very trusting person. And he's like, before we go on this group, uh, and to just kind of as a test of character, uh, he challenges her to a game called Conquest, which is uh, has a series of cards, and they float in the air, and then um, Kaza joins in, by the way. And uh, each card has a word on it. And so the first person draws a card and, you know, it has a word. And that person has to tell a true story uh, about that word, um, involving that word, themed on that word, whatever. And if it's an impressive story, um, 
you know, they they went around and and other people took deal cards and uh well basically it's it's a adventurers story time one upmanship you know what ca- what kind of information can i glean from you from these stories and these cards and stuff uh so he draws a card called cunning which is a story about how he scammed this wizard at seagate out of a bunch of their scrolls then Nahiri draws the foe card and talks about Soren and uh, Innistrad and the the world-ending battle that happened there. Although, I don't think she knows that the world did not end on Innistrad. Uh, that, that's the kind of sense that I got. No, I got that sense as well. Kaza jumps in with a victory card and, and talks about exploding a bunch of Eldrazi because of course she does. And then uh, Nahiri goes again and draws a card called Power. Uh, and while this is happening, um, while, while Kaza is telling her story, um, Nahiri, feeling through the stone, feels footsteps near her. So she draws this Power card, and then she turns all the cards into granite and uh, rips them out of everybody else's hands and has the whole deck and is like, I'm the winner, damn it. Now Zareth. Give me the thing you just took from me back. And Zareth is called out. He is beaten. Um, his trickstery thing did not work as he tried to pilfer the Skyclave key that she had. And uh, so she gets it back and this does nothing to make them trust each other anymore. And in fact, <laughs> increases their distrust of each other. Gosh, wonder if that's foreshadowing anything. Uh, <laughs> and so... At this point, there's like this real uneasy sense of, okay, we're going to go do the thing. And then they go do the thing. Kind of. They they get there. The, they set off onto their, their path to Marasa, and they uh, get attacked by a stomper, which was a really funny moment in the story, of <laughs> course, uh, where we kind of were expecting Zareth to like get stabbed by Nahiri, but Nahiri instead stabbed the stomper behind him, like the... the you know how it works, right? With the gun and like the movies. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so they they kill the stomper uh, through the use of the key. Yeah. So the the key freezes the stomper in place, and it just kind of crumbles to dust. Which uh, I know I know the McKinney Empire predates the Eldrazi, and there's like no way that there's any connection between the two, but it is eerily reminiscent of Ulamog's desecration. So they uh, they begin the ascent into the Skyclave, but Akiri, who's coming up last, uh, notices this like bulging black blighted spot where the stomper was. It's very unsettling, and she's very uncomfortable with that because it's clearly a result of the use of the key. And I, I think this is the point where, like, I, I don't think she totally trusts Nahiri anyway. I think she's too smart to trust people too much in the first place. But I, th- I think this is where her seed of doubt about this whole quest is really flaring up. Yeah, I think while Akiri can be slightly idealistic, she, that, that blighted spot definitely, like, she was kind of, not for their th- um, trick in the bar, but I think seeing that blighted spot definitely made her 
side with him a little bit more and back his plays going forward after that moment. Um, but anywho, um, after that, we shift over to Jace um, arriving in Seagate. Um, and he finds his way <laughs> to the uh, to the inn, uh, the Seagate, or not inn, Seagate Expeditionary House. Um, after being ignored by a, a number of people trying to get directions um, or looking for a place to stay the night anyway. And um, yeah, he, uh, he has this run in with someone who doesn't recognize him, who was a uh, survivor. Well, she recognizes him as a, someone that fought against the Eldrazi, but she doesn't really get who he is exactly. Uh, she remembers his blue cloak and he takes her or she takes him, excuse me, to the memorial that has been set up for the survivors of the battle against the Eldrazi. And it's a a really sort of like somber moment where Jace thinks of Gideon, who like didn't just sacrifice himself in the fight against Bolas. He also sacrificed himself in a lot of ways in the fight against the Eldrazi. And so Jace has twice now had a victory at the sacrifice of Gideon. Um, of course, like Gideon survived the fight with the Eldrazi on Zendikar, but he really hurt himself in the process. He, you know, had a foot in two different planes at once. And it was a uh, a really somber moment where you remember that like Jace isn't just a mind mage or guild pact. He is also a survivor of a war, like several wars at this point. Well, and especially in this specific case, the Eldrazi are a thing that he helped release. He carries a lot of guilt with that. Uh, you know, he he mentions he he's guilty and wants to set things right as best he can. Yeah, but he does leave the memorial, and uh, he finds it really hard to sort of walk through Seagate. Uh, people keep trying to sell him things. People keep trying to to ask him questions. Uh, no one is really listening to him. They're trying to sell him stuff. So he turns himself into like an old man, old merfolk, excuse me, because he's a blue aligned planeswalker. So he can't be a, a human. He's got to be <laughs> an <merfolk>. old man folk. <laughs> an old man folk. Uh, a merman, you could say. Merman. God, I love Zealander. Anyway. <laughs> um, and he, he makes his way uh, to the Seagate Expeditionary House. Yeah. So he talks to Ksenio. Uh, who is like, hey, I can't really tell you anything, you know, uh, and is kind of talks around a lot of stuff, but then hands him uh, a little note with a secret message on it that just says Marasa. Uh, which Jace is a, a smart boy, a little smarty boy. Uh, and he knows that that is uh, where he needs to go. And so he heads his way to Marasa because he thinks I can find Nahiri here. Uh, and instead of finding Nahiri, he finds a giant fungus monster who tries to kill him. At which point he is saved by Nyssa. Um, and she exclaims, Jace, you came. And uh, they prepare to ascend to the Skyclave. Yeah, I, I love Nyssa at this part. She is kind of arrogant about the elementals. She's flexing. She's absolutely flexing a little bit. She is finally on her home turf. And she is the, she's the leader now. Not Gideon, not Jace. Her. And, and Jace is like, hey, yes, good. I want to help. I don't really understand your thing with the Zendikar, but I'm going to do everything I can to help. And she smiles at that, and that's really sweet. 
because they're friends. They're Gatewatch members. They're they're pals. And it's nice to see them like, especially because they didn't get along super great in BFC. They kind of worked together out of necessity, but now they're like actually. They've always had this like very special kind of relationship. Uh, I mean, like every member of the Gatewatch had their own special relationship with every other member of the Gatewatch. But Jace's and Nissa's relationship was really one of communication and understanding um, in ways that the other members really couldn't. Because uh, Jace could get into Nissa's head, like actually like, you know, magically and not just like, you know, theoretically. Uh, and that made it easier for her to communicate with him. And finally, we get to see them communicating again and the sort of acknowledgement of like, this is our relationship. You know, this is who we are together. Um, and it's, yeah, it's very sweet. You know, speaking about that, ever since Ixalan, Chase has been pretty hesitant to just jump into people's heads. I love that. He has learned. Yeah, it's about consent and it's great. When he's doing deep digging, but like he has this moment with Ksenia where he's like, I really know I should be prying into her head and I, I really don't want to be prying into her head, but I'm desperate here and I need information. And he just like takes little peeks into her head. Yeah, he's uh he's developed a lot as a character, but also like I'm so happy to have these stories again with Jace. Like getting to see Jace and like really see Jace again is nice. And not just like the little bits we had of Jace and other stories since basically Ixalan. Like this is this is nice. Feels good. Yeah. I, I like Jace a lot. Um I was very excited to write him for Arena, and I I love his moments. I love what he's doing in the story, the set as a whole in the story in particular. And he's he's just trying to do good, and it's nice. It's nice. It, like he's carrying a lot, a lot of guilt. Uh, you know, for the Eldrazi, for knowing Nicobolus is still alive, for not listening to Nissa at the beginning of the story. Like he's just trying. Yeah, it's the it's sort of the reason why Jace is a hero. It's the oh. you know, it's the heroic thing about him is that he carries with him so much grief and pain and just trauma, and he's still like, I have to go to Zendikar and stop this wild core woman from destroying everything. I have to go help my friend, and it's like, yeah, it's just really great. Like I, I think the mamas with Ksenia make him feel very human to me. Well, he is a human. His his type would be human wizard, I believe. It was. Yeah. Anyways, uh, how are we feeling about the the main series stories so far? I'm 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 liking them. Uh, At Greenblatt's doing great. His characters, um, you know, like all the standard sets. I think uh, she and I are hitting a lot of the same resonant points with them for the set. Um, in in each of our works but like i i love the way she's playing out nahiri's arrogance um but so her care uh and her passion and i like the subtlety of nissa's um black leanings in this set it's showing up in the story and i loved it it shows up like very briefly uh so so because of our scheduling times, you know, we've already read the third and fourth stories. and Yeah, we have. We're going to get some more direct 
black green Nissa stuff. Uh, but like we're getting, we got hints of it last week. We have slightly more hints of it this week, and I and I like that it's something that is just kind of building inside of her as the story goes. Yeah, the, the, she's described at one point in the story as uh, by Jace. He describes her with uh, the expression on her face was absolutely murderous. I'm like, oh, yep, there's a green black character for you, at least black leaning green character that we're aware of. Yeah, um, I think that. You know, this, this story definitely, it, it gave me a different perspective of looking at Jace. That, you know, after reading the Ixalan stories, you get one view of him. And I see, like, it makes me, I like, I know that Jace isn't going to fall into this whole survivor, um, survivorship, uh, what's the name of that thing? Um, gosh survivor's guilt like i'm i'm like it 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 makes me feel like he's on the positive side of the survivor's guilt where he's taking it to make himself a little bit better and not making it weigh on him as much as gideon tended to have like i I feel like i'm butchering this explanation but I, i really like the the thought and care that she's taking with jace and the way that he's approaching things with um with how he remembers gideon and working to approve himself based on those memories um it's i've never really been the huge jace fan um being the selesnia person that i am but you know i can appreciate good writing especially good character development yeah no i see what you're you're saying with jace and gideon like gideon had all of this guilt and survivor uh survivor's guilt that he had hanging on him that he he didn't really handle very healthfully healthily whatever the full of health would be um he put himself in dangerous situations and he hurt himself a lot of the times um and in a lot of ways it was for the good the greater good but in a lot of other ways like it was not a healthy way to deal with your trauma you know like maybe there's better ways to process what you've gone through than pushing your body to its limits and jace is sort of also experiencing a lot of those same experiences of survivor's guilt and trauma and he's channeling it in a different way he's sort of trying to use it to open himself up a little bit instead of closing himself off yeah instead of being i have to do this personally because of my guilt he's like exactly i need to go help this person because together we're better. Thank you, Chris. That is exactly what I meant, and you said it perfectly. Yeah, historically, Jace has dealt with that kind of guilt and trauma in really poor ways, uh, erasing his own memory, uh, ignoring his responsibilities. He's run from a lot of those events. You know, when he releases the Eldrazi, sticks around for a tiny little bit, leaves, and gets caught up in other mysteries. He kind of forgets about Zendikar until Gideon comes to grab him um, and reminds him, like, hey, you have a responsibility here. You should help. And uh, he's getting better. Like, like when I when I say Jace feels very human to me, I think the character is at a point now where he is... He knows the things he has to do to get better, and he recognizes that... Uh, he was a worse person before and that he was not handling things like stress and trauma well. Um, And 
he has turned a corner, but he's not like an A to B change where like all of a sudden he's better now. He struggles with the things he has to do better, and, and that feels very real to me. One of the few characterization things that I really liked in the Greg Wiseman novels was Jace being so uncertain of himself, um, you know, when he tries to kill Liliana uh, in some of his discussions with Frasca and Forsaken. There, J- Jace just isn't ever certain, right? Uh, you know, because what other data could he get? What other mysteries could he solve? You know, did he does he have the best solution to this puzzle? He is always driving for more. It's a very relatable struggle, and I think it it keeps him like the phrase I think I want is like it keeps him honest about like who he is, right? Um, He doesn't get arrogant. He doesn't get full of himself. You know, he he might have some behaviors that seem that way, but they come out of genuine interest in mysteries and puzzles like the beginning of uh his introduction to this whole story is uh oh i've got all these solutions and we can do all these research things and blah 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 which might seem like selfish and arrogant but he's like like they're a little bit selfish because he's like letting himself get caught up in the mystery but like he just legitimately loves solving puzzles and that gets a little out of hand and he has to step back and say like hey wait i need to be a better friend i need to listen and help and let Nissa leave. This is her thing. And that's a lot of maturity. And he's done a lot of maturing since Battle for Zendikar. And it's been very nice to watch. Yeah, he's a good bean. Yeah. Yeah, like like I said, I I like Jace a lot. And I didn't used to, and I don't know when that changed. I, I think it's just like a thing that kind of crept up over time. And then like, you know, a thing that happens when you start working on magic is, uh, especially in a creative capacity, is that you start looking into character a lot more deeply. And I don't know, the, the more I learn about Chase, the more I like him. I've unpacked a lot of what's happening in his head to the point where I see there are parts of him that remind me a lot of myself. There are parts of him that are very different than me. But like, I find him a very clean character from a creative standpoint like we know who jace is right yeah uh my my only thoughts about these stories as like a so far like a general feeling of at greenblatt stories is that she is also doing a wonderful job of characterization and and giving us these character moments Mm -hmm. um much in the same way that miguel lopez did with his two stories about akiri and zarasan uh what at doing is doing though is um a little bit of a longer longer project with these stories you know miguel got two she gets five so she's sort of dragging out the character growth through the course of five stories and we're sort of getting little bits and pieces of every character and it's nice indeed uh is it time for final thoughts uh i think it is time for final thoughts (laughs) hitch i think my final thought is going to be sorry to hear you we didn't talk a lot about you for this story but uh slight preview for next week we're gonna have so much to talk about with nahiri yike yike uh yeah that's gonna be my final thought my final thought is uh i played my first game of uh among us yesterday and um i might have gotten the uh murderer person wrong it might not be jay it might be chris 
I don't know what you're talking about. Lorelai killed me earlier today. <laughs> I sure did. In in both games that I was able to play before going to bed, Chris was the murderer, and in one of those cases, he killed me. <laughs> it was delightful. Uh, yeah, I've been playing a lot of Among Us, and that's going to be my final thought. Uh, well, I, I'll have two final thoughts, but I just want to say I've been playing a lot of Among Us. I'm trying to get people on the server, uh, so if you're one of our Discord patron, or patrons on Patreon and you're in our Discord, you can join our server, and I will probably ping you when I'm wanting to play Among Us. I, I swear, one of these weeks, we're going to not mix up Patreon and Patron. I, I stumble over those words so much. Anyway, what's your second final thought? Because you're greedy here. My second final thought is that uh, you should be donating to your local bail funds. There's a lot going on right now, and uh, people need support. And I'm going to be making a donation to mine uh, probably tomorrow. And, you know, people are out there protesting. There's a lot to protest about right now, uh, specifically with uh, regards to the non-justice handed down in the Breonna Taylor case. So go give to bail funds, support your local communities, etc. like that. Hot take, cops bad. Uh, Yeah, if it's as easy as if you go to Google, type in your town, type in bail fund, uh, you will find things. Do your best to keep things local. Um, the big national stuff is going to get attention. Uh, you can obviously donate to those if you'd like, um, but don't forget about your local stuff too. That's your community. And I guess it feels weird to say to to tell people to go over to Patreon.com/slash/TheFourthHostCast and support us because, frankly, there are better things you can be doing with your money right now. But if you would like to join us and be part of our Discord server, I I agree, Chris. I would love to get Among Us game starting. Uh, played for my first time today for like three hours. That was your first time playing. Yeah. Oh my god! But you murdered me so efficiently and so yeah, cleanly. Yeah, so good. No one ever knew. Yeah, it was wonderful. Uh, cause cause well, cause you mur- got you went back up into the the dropship. I was so a fool. No one was ever no one was ever gonna go back in there. My body was gone. But yeah, you know, we, we have a great Discord community with a lot of wonderful people. And, you know, we are uh, heading out of a new set right now. And people are, uh, you know, finally playing it on Arena. Um, hopefully some people on our server are actually going to get to play in paper, which is very exciting for those folks. Um, remember, keep wearing your masks, especially here in the States. Um, but always, you know, check in with your local guidelines, uh, your local governments and and warnings and whatever and whatever your precautions are um but yeah we've we've got good folks i don't want to like spook people um but i guess it's appropriate because october is coming up but uh october is also going to bring commander legends previews so this is a product that Orthos is like us are very excited for and i I, if you want to be part of a community of orthoses who are going to be pooping their pants with excitement over commander legends uh get in there now get in the discord now it's uh it's gonna be great but otherwise uh thank you to all our patrons and especially all our listeners who uh make the show possible listen every week this has been the orthos cast